Hope you uh, had a good spring break. We did. We ran around with 70 uh, band members all over Hawaii, which was very difficult, but somebody had to do it, and, and Gwen and I volunteered, and so we had a good time. It was a very good time, and good kids, and uh, good to see Amber uh, with the kids that she goes to school with, and get to know some of the parents of the kids that she's with, and and it was just good, but kind of an adjustment. We left uh, at noon on Friday, got in at 8.30 yesterday, and here we are with uh, snow on our windshield. That's kind of a, of a big adjustment. But I am excited to get back into uh, Job chapter 3, although I have to admit, after a week of uh, uh, sunny weather and sitting on beaches and running around having fun with a bunch of high schoolers, looking at Job's cry of despair is quite a contrast. But the reality is, uh, sometimes we have the same despair, the same uh, depression that Job expresses here in Job chapter 3. We looked at this uh, two weeks ago. It's an eruption of emotions. I mean, Job chapter 3 is not a chapter that uh, you're going to want to spend a lot of time in. But the reality is, it is a realistic picture. Let's look at, again, divide the chapter up, and we probably need to read read it a little bit again. So look at the top of your notes. Job's cry of despair. It's really divided up into two things. He's cursing the day he was born in the light of his present despair. Let's look at verses 1 through 10. Job. Chapter 3, after Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth, and Job said, let the day perish on which I was to be born in the night, which said a boy is conceived. May that day be darkness. Let not God above care for it, nor let light shine on it. Let darkness and black gloom claim it. Let a cloud settle on it. Let the blackness of the day terrify it. As for that night... Let darkness seize it. Let it not rejoice among the days of the year. Let it not come into the number of the months. In other words, wipe it off the calendar. Behold, let that night be barren. Let no joyful shout enter it. Let those curse it who curse the day, who are prepared to rouse Leviathan. Let the stars of its twilight be darkened, and let it wait for the light, but have none. Neither let it see the breaking dawn. Why? Because it did not shut the opening of my mother's womb or hide trouble from my eyes. That is Job cursing the day he was born. But the second half of the chapter, from 11 on, he's crying. And he's crying that he cannot die to escape his present despair. He's like, I wish I had never been born, but obviously I am born. And I'm suffering. But my suffering is so great, I wish I could die. Let's look at that. Verse 11. Why did I not die at birth? Come forth from the womb and expire. Why did the knees receive me? That is, my father accept me onto his knees. And why the breasts? that I should suck? Why did my mother feed me as soon as as I was born? For now I would have lain down and been quiet. I would have slept, then I would have been at rest with kings and with counselors of the earth who rebuilt ruins for themselves or with princes who had gold who were filling their houses with silver or like a miscarriage which is discarded, I would not be as infants that never see light. There the wicked cease from raging, and there the weary are at rest. He just wants rest. He wants relief. He wants release. Verse 18, the prisoners are at ease together. 
They do not hear the voice of the taskmaster. And the small and the great are there, and the slave is free from his master. Why is light given to him who suffers, and life to the bitter of soul, who long for death, but there is none, and dig for it more than hidden treasures, who rejoice greatly and exult when they find the grave? Why is light given to a man whose way is hidden, and whom God has hedged in? Now, here are these next three verses get to the heart of his despair. For my groaning comes at the sight of my food, and my cries pour out like water. For what I fear comes upon me, and what I dread befalls me. I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. I am not at rest, but turmoil comes. We ended uh, two weeks ago looking at this chapter with this question, is Job a positive or a negative example of despair? And the answer is really, he's a realistic one. He is a realistic one while still being one of the godliest, godliest people in the Bible. When we look at this chapter, what we just read, we have a hard time with it because we know Job is a godly person, but he's talking like someone who is ungodly or someone who is unbelieving. Someone, In, in fact, we kind of have time believing that the Job of chapter 3 is the same Job of chapter 2. You know, Job chapter 2, blessed be the name of the Lord. He gives, He takes away. We just see Him as very calm in the midst of His suffering, very godly. And then all of a sudden in chapter 3, He just lets loose. And we're like, whoa. In fact, uh, some people want to say, well, it's two different people wrote it. But the reality is all of this is wrapped up. In fact, to his friend uh, Eliphaz, he says this, How painful are honest words. And that's what we're getting in Job chapter 3, the honest words of a man in deep depression and despair. But what does your argument prove? Do you intend to reprove my words when the words of one in in despair belong to the wind? Job's saying, look, Job's telling us, don't take what I'm saying too seriously. I'm talking like a crazy guy because I'm out of my mind in suffering. And then he says this to God in chapter 7, verse 11. He says, Therefore I will not restrain my mouth. I will speak in the anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. So he's crying, he's complaining, he's cursing. And out of this chapter, we've seen two dreadful consequences of a despairing heart. Two dreadful consequences. Last week, or two weeks ago, we saw that despair breeds a death wish. And basically, you can divide up this chapter, I wish I'd never been born, I wish I had died at birth, I wish I could die right now. Job's not having a good day. Right? And then we need to remember that the difference between desiring death And committing suicide is doing something about it by claiming God's right over my life. By taking matters into my own hands. But what I want us to look at today is that despair, number two, brings distorted thinking. Despair brings distorted thinking. You don't want to go to Job chapter 3 and get your uh, theology of God, your theology of life, because despair brings distorted thinking. Job's not thinking right, therefore Job is not talking right. You understand that? And when people are in deep despair, they're going to say things 
that if they were not going through the valley, they wouldn't say. If they were not, if they didn't have distorted thinking, they wouldn't say these things. And so we need to understand that. I like the warning of John Piper. He says, we should fortify ourselves against the dark hours of depression by cultivating a deep distrust of the certainties of despair. Despair is relentless in the certainties of its pessimism. In other words, when you're in that deep valley, you are certain it's never going to get better. And someone tells you there's light at that end of that tunnel, and you are certain it's an oncoming train. And all the convincing in the world will not convince you because you're, you're thinking, you're just certain that it's, got, it's bad and it's only going to get worse. Have you been there? You know what I'm talking about? Well, let's look at six ways that despair distorts our thinkings. The first is this, distorted thinking number one. Strong believers don't ever get depressed. We talked about this a little last week, but I want to show you some examples. In other words, it's easy to get... This isn't so much distorted thinking. Well, it, it it's how we think about people that are suffering, and it's how people who are suffering think when they're believers. Because sometimes we think, I'm a believer. I don't get depressed. And so when you're depressed and you think believers don't get depressed, you go into denial and you start thinking all... You think it's... I don't know. It's just... You know, well, it can't be depression because believers don't get depressed. Well, yeah, it can be. I'm a strong believer, so I don't get depressed. So if I'm depressed, I must be weak. I must be somehow, uh, I need to hide that. I can't admit that. Other people get depressed, but I'm stronger than they are. I'm stronger than my depression. Well, here's the biblical reality. Even the strongest believers despair, and some actually suffer to severe bouts of depression. Now, we saw that video of uh, Piper and, and MacArthur, and apparently John MacArthur is, you know, is one of the unique individuals that doesn't, and that's fine for him, but for the rest of us, we do get depressed. I, I want to go through some examples in Scripture, and I want to read some verses. I want to read some testimonies to you of some of the greatest men of God in Scripture who were also people who battled despair and depression. The first is the Apostle Paul. In 2 Corinthians 1.8, he says this, We don't want you to become unaware, brethren, of our affliction, our suffering, which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened, listen, burdened excessively beyond our strength so that we despaired even of life. See, we read that stuff and we don't understand how deep of anguish and despair that this godly man experienced. In 2 Corinthians 4.1, he gives the, this testimony. Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we don't lose heart. But then he goes on to tell us just how despair, despairing and depressing life could be for him. He says, We have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. And then he goes through this list. He says, We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We're perplexed. You ever been in a place where you're just like, I can't put this all together. I don't understand what's going on in my life. I, I have more questions than I have answers, but but not despairing. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying about in the body 
the dying of Jesus. In other words, we're always like on the point of physical death so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our body. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake. Now, when you go through that, it's easy to just, again, just read through that and not understand just how deep of suffering, how deep of physical uh, physical suffering, affliction that he suffered. In 2 Corinthians 7, 5, he says this, For even when we came to Macedonia, our flesh had no rest, but we were afflicted on every side, conflicts without and fears within. So Paul understood pressure from without, but he also understood fear and anxiety and worry from within. And he dealt with it, and he dealt with it in a godly way, but what I want you to understand is he experienced it. Okay? Now, what about David the king? Well, now you go into the Psalms. And here's David, a man after God's own heart, the one who is a type of Jesus Christ. And yet in Psalm 6, David says this, I am weary from my sighing. Every night I make my bed swim. I dissolve my couch with tears. That's a whole lot of crying. You ever cried so much that you didn't think you had any more tears, and yet you cry some more? My eyes has my eyes has wasted away with grief. It has become old because of all my adversaries. Listen to Psalm 13. David sings, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart all the day? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? Psalm 38, he says this, I'm bent over and greatly bowed down. I go mourning all day long for my loins are filled with burning and there's no soundness in my flesh. I'm benumbed, benumbed and badly crushed. I groan because of the agitation of my heart. Now, Psalm 42 is not written by David, but it was another godly man who experienced deep despair. And he says this in Psalm 42, My tears have been my food day and night. While they said to me all day long, Where is your God? These things I remember, and I pour out my soul within me. For I used to go along with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with the voice of joy. You know, I used to have really good times of worshiping God. It was great to worship God, but now... He says to his heart, why are you in despair, O my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him. I just want you to hear the, the depth of despair. And if you really want to read a song of despair, if you really want to get to the deep heart of it, you read Psalm 88. Psalm 88. Verse 1, O Lord, the God of my salvation, I have cried out by day and in the night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry, for my soul has had enough troubles and my life has drawn near to Sheol. I feel like I'm about to die for my soul, for I am reckoned among those who go down to the pit. I have become like a man without strength, forsaken among the dead like the slain who lie in the grave whom you remember no more, and they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the lowest pit, in dark places, in the depths. 
My eyes wasted away because of affliction. I've called upon you every day, O Lord. I have spread out my hands to you. Will your wonders be made known in the darkness? And he just goes on and on. And, and we, just, we just forget that these are godly people who are crying out in despair. So we've got the Apostle Paul. We've got King David. we got Jeremiah the prophet. In fact, Jeremiah the prophet sounds almost like he's quoting Job 3. Listen to what he says. In Job 20, Cursed be the day when I was born. Let the day not be blessed when my mother bore me. Cursed be the man who brought news to my father, saying, A baby boy has been born to you and made him very happy. But let that man be like the cities which the Lord overthrew without relenting. Let him hear an outcry in the morning and a shout of alarm. In other words, Lord, kill that guy that brought news that I had been born. That's pretty disappointing. Depressing, isn't it? Because he did not kill me before birth so that my mother would have been my grave and her womb ever pregnant. Why did I ever come forth from the womb to look on to trouble and sorrow so that my days have been spent in shame? Here's Jeremiah the prophet, just like Job, wishing a death wish of despair. What about Elijah the prophet? You remember him? Here's what he said. He took a day's journey into the wilderness after one of his greatest spiritual victories that is ever recorded in the Bible, and here's what he prayed. He prayed that he might die. He sat under a broom tree and prayed that he might die, and he said these words, I have had enough. Lord, take my life, for I am no better than my father's. Then he lay down and slept under the broom tree. Probably the most spiritual thing he could have done. And here's what the Lord said. Suddenly an angel touched him, and rebuked him for his cry of despair. No, he said, get up and eat. You know, sometimes the best thing you can do is just eat and sleep. Because the reality is a lot of times we're not eating right, and we're not sleeping right. And that leads to this kind of depression. Martin Luther, the great reformer, Luther endured many instances of depression. He described the experiences in terms like melancholy, heaviness, depression, dejection of spirit, downcast, sad, and downhearted. All those are, are in modern days, we would call it what? Depressed, right? And he's just using the words of medieval uh, uh, 1500s. Spurgeon, in his famous lectures... And we'll get to him. He had great depression. The minister's fading, fainting fits had this to say about Luther's battles with depression. Here's what Spurgeon says about Luther. It's not necessary by quotations from the biographies of intimate, eminent uh, ministers to prove that seasons of fearful depression have fallen to a lot, to, to, to most of them, if not all of them. The life of Luther might suffice to give a thousand instances and he was by no means of the weaker sort. In other words, Luther was a mighty, powerful, strong man who was broken by depression many, a thousand times over. His great spirit was often in the seventh heaven of exaltation and as frequently on the borders of despair. His very deathbed was not free from tempests, and he sobbed himself into his last sleep like a great wearied child. He suffered in this area for much of his life, and he often revealed his struggles in his works. Evidently, he did not think it was a shameful problem to be hidden. See, these guys, the reason we know these guys were depressed, why? Because they talked about it. They talked about it. 
And, and they were conflicted about it. In fact, Luther says at one time, this is his greatest weakness, that he gets depressed so often and so frequently. And, that, and yet at another time he says, I would never be the man I am spiritually and in my godliness if it wasn't for... And basically, when he was depressed, he wished he wasn't. And when he wasn't depressed, he wished he was because he grew so much from it. So if you're confused about what's going on in your life, take heart. So was Luther. During one difficult period, Luther was carrying uh, many burdens and he was fighting many battles. And he usually was a jolly, smiling kind of guy. He had a great sense of humor. Instead, he was depressed and worried. And his wife, Catherine, endured this for many days. And one day she met him at the door wearing a black mourning dress. And Luther said, who died? And Catherine said, God. And Luther said, you foolish thing, why this foolishness? And she said, it's true. God must have died or Dr. Luther would not be so sorrowful. And it must have worked because he snapped out of his depression after that. One historian describes the terror with which Luther experienced at this time as a fear that God, quote, God had turned his back on him once and for all, abandoning him, quote, to suffer the pains of hell. He felt alone in the universe. He doubted his own faith, his own mission, and the goodness of God. Doubts which, because they verged on blasphemy, drove him deeper and deeper into despair. His prayers met a wall of indifferent silence. For more than a week, Luther says, I was close to the gates of death and hell. I trembled in all my members. Christ was wholly lost. I was shaken by desperation and blasphemy of God. His faith was if it had never been. He despised himself and murmured against God. In fact, his friend Philip Melanchthon said that the terrors afflicting Luther became so severe that he almost died. He almost died of his depression, of his despair. Now, how did God work during the dark night of his soul? You understand that in this period that I'm describing to you, Luther penned the great and famous hymn, The Mighty Fortress is Our God which has encouraged and uplifted many a despairing heart ever since. And yet out of that, he's trusting God, and yet he thinks he's not sure he still believes in God. Here's, uh, here's what he said. Luther said, if I live longer, I would like to write a book about the dark night of the soul. For without them, no one, no person is able to know the Holy Scripture, nor faith, the fear and the love of God. Indeed, he is not able to know what the Spirit is, having never been in temptations. Basically, he's saying, I want to write about my depression and my despair, because without it, you'll never really know God. You say, is that really true? Is that really possible? Well, upstairs, you're going to hear Romans 8. It's not only Luther's thinking, it's God's word that says we have to suffer in order to attain God's glory. Here's a final word from Luther. Therefore, we should willingly endure the hand of God in this and in all suffering. Do not be worried. Indeed, such a trial is the very best sign of God's grace and love for you. Wow. Charles Spurgeon, the prince of preachers, wrote a famous lecture. He wrote a book, Lectures to My Students, and he devoted a whole chapter to the minister's fainting fits. Now, again, that's terminology that we don't use 
You, today we would say uh, the, the, the minister's depress, depressing uh, moments or, or dark nights of their soul. Um, you got to understand who Charles, he, he was in the 1800s. If, if you took Billy Graham, Rick Warren, and John, John Piper and wrapped them all in one person, you might come close, maybe, to the greatness of who Charles Spurgeon was as a pastor. Yet he struggled with dark nights of the soul, seasons of despair, and full-blown debilitating depression throughout his life. Listen to this. In October 1858, he had his first episode of incapacitating illness since he had become pastor in London. Some of us, when we were in London, actually saw his church there. And having been absent from his pulpit for three Sundays, so this guy's so depressed, he can't even preach for three Sundays. And when he gets back in the pulpit, he preaches from 1 Peter 1 6, which says this, wherein you are greatly, wherein you greatly rejoice now for a season, if need be, you are in heaviness through manifold temptations. In other words, he preached, hey, I rejoice even in my debilitating depression. In another sermon called The Christian's Heaviness, which we would call depression, the Christian's depression and rejoicing, Spurgeon said that during his illness, when my spirits were sunken so low that I, I could weep by the hour like a child and yet not know what I wept for. So, okay, Piper's not the weird one, okay? A kind friend was telling me of some poor old soul living nearby who was suffering a very great pain. It was cancer, and yet she was full of joy and rejoicing. I was so distressed by hearing that story and felt so ashamed of myself. And while he was struggling with this contrast between his depression and the joy of this woman who is afflicted with cancer, he says this, This text flashed upon my mind with its real meaning, that sometimes Christians should not endure his suffering with a gallant and a joyous heart, but sometimes his spirit should sink within him, and that he should become even as a little child smitten beneath the hand of God. In other words... Spurgeon says, I realize that sometimes we go through depression and we rejoice in God's goodness, and sometimes we, we, we just can't. We're just so broken. Sometimes Spurgeon's, uh, he had gout. He had all sorts of physical ailments. It was physiological. It was psychological. Yet he considered it his own worst feature, as I said, and yet he realized he said this about it. I would go into the deeps a hundred times to cheer a downcast spirit. It is good for me to have been afflicted that I may know how to speak a word in season to one who is weary. Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying, look, I would go to the depths a thousand times that I might encourage one other person with the comfort that God has comforted me. He said this about God's sovereignty and His suffering. He explained in 1873, he said this, As long as I can trace my pain to accident, my bereavement to, to mistake, my loss to another's wrong, my discomfort to an enemy, and so on, I am of the earth, earthy, and shall break my teeth with gravel stones. But when I rise to my God and see his hand at work, I grow calm and I have not a word of complaining. In other words, he says, as long as I look for human sources of why I'm discouraged, 
then all it does is grind me down and get me more defeated. But once I look up and realize that God is sovereign in allowing this, then I find that I can endure what I'm going through. And Job right now in chapter 3, he's not looking up to God. He's not looking to... He's just complaining, cursing, and crying. But he's going to go through 40 chapters where finally he's going to look up to God and he's going to say it's been worth it all. All right, we could go on. There's just some amazing stuff. C.S. Lewis, the famous apologist, uh in 1956, in his late 50s, C.S. Lewis, a longtime bachelor, finally, finally found love with an American divorcee by the name of Joy Gresham. But four years after an agonizing battle with cancer, she died. And Lewis uh, filled notebooks and journals with his grief, his mourning, his questions to God. And he addressed questions like this, How could a good God allow this woman to die? and in such a painful way. Was he, after all, a cosmic sadist, or did he even exist? He examined all those questions, and he journaled all of it, and then he put it in a book, and he published it under a pseudonym, and the book is called A Grief Observed. He basically wrote and observed his mourning, his grief, his despair, and he wrote about it, and it's one of the greatest books that he ever wrote. And ultimately, he decided this, that spiritual darkness is a sort of divine shock treatment. Nothing less will shake a man, or at any rate, a man like me, out of his merely verbal thinking and his merely notional beliefs. He has to be knocked silly before he comes to his senses. Only torture will bring out the truth. Only under torture does he discover it himself. Likening his former faith to a house of cards, Lewis concludes, the sooner it was knocked down, the better, and only suffering could do it. That's some pretty powerful words. Likening suffering to God's torture. You know, in a day when waterboarding and torturing is not, you know, that's not a very popular way to talk about, but basically what he's saying is this. My kind of... uh, my head knowledge of God and my my perspective on God that I had all worked out in my head needed suffering to break it down so that I really saw God for who He really was. That's some powerful stuff. And then, of course, we have Jesus, Jesus, the sinless God-man. Here's a man without sin, and yet at the death of his dear friend Lazarus, Jesus expressed grief and he was angry. He was angry at death. So Jesus understands mourning over the loss of a loved one. In the garden, Jesus used the Psalms of Psalm 42 to express his own anguish. He says, my soul has become troubled and greatly distressed. My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. And then on the cross, he uses Psalm 22 and quotes, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning, the very same word that Job uses about his groaning, and the very word that we're going to look at upstairs about Romans 8, the groaning. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer in By night, I have no rest. Here's the point of all that. Jesus, the son of sinless son of God, became man, and he understands despair. He understands depression. Now, it wasn't due to sin, but it was due to just living in a fallen world, and it was due to fulfilling God's will for his life. 
So let's get rid of the idea that true Christians or godly Christians don't suffer depression. Amen? Because it's just not true. It's distorted thinking. And the sooner we get rid of it, the better. Number two, distorted thinking. We should be able to easily diagnose and fix our despair or the despair of others. That's distorted thinking. We should easily be able to diagnose this and fix it. The biblical reality is believers are still complex human beings with a sin nature. Believers can suffer deeply on many complex interrelated uh, interrelated levels at one time. We tend to think every as Christians, because we believe in and we should believe in absolute truth, and because we believe in a God who created all things, and because we believe that in God everything will find their 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 resolution and their and the solution. It's easy to think that isolate everything into a spiritual problem, and if you just read your Bible more, pray more, and believe more, what? It'll all get better, right? But the reality is we're not simply that simply made. And we're interrelated. And I, I've shown you, Job had physical despair. He was, he was itching and he had pus oozing sores from the crown, from the bottom of his feet to the top of his head. He had mental despair. Here in Job 3, he cries out to God and asks him why five times. In fact, in Job 19.22, he says, Why do you persecute me to his friends? He says, Why do you persecute me as God does and are not satisfied with my flesh? I mean, aren't you happy enough that my body's rotting away? Do you have to torment me further like God is? He had physical, mental despair. He had emotional despair. Hey, when you're cursing the day you were born and you wish you could die, that's some emotional pain. Social despair. He's sitting on the garbage dump. Everybody's abandoned him. He's, he's suffering sh- shame, dishonor, humiliation, separation. And then you come to number five. You come to spiritual despair. And what you realize here is that the biggest suffering, the biggest pain that Job has was his greatest fear. Look at verse 25. He says, chapter 3, verse 25, For what I fear comes upon me, and what I dread befalls me. Now, that's a, pretty, that's a, that's a key verse. What was Job's greatest fear? What was he so depressed about? What was he so despairing about? Now, the first thing that would come to our minds is, he had ten kids, and what? They had just died. He was the richest man, and he had lost what? all his wealth. He had been so blessed of God with good health, and now he's on the verge of dying. You would think his greatest fear was losing my kid, losing my job, losing my wealth, losing my health. And let's just be honest, right now in this room, that's probably sums up our greatest fears. But do you know what he really feared more than all that? You know what's ironic in Job 3? He doesn't say one thing about losing his kids. You know what's interesting about Job 3? He doesn't say one thing about losing his wealth. In fact, he doesn't really say anything about his health. What he is crying about, what his greatest fear that has come upon him, that he thinks has come upon him, is that he has lost his relationship with God. He fears that God is no longer his friend. The friendship with God, losing that was his greatest fear. You say, how, how, do you, how can you prove that from Scripture? Well, remember in Job chapter 1, what was he doing all the time? 
He was offering up sacrifices, not only for him, but for his kids. If perchance they had somehow sinned against God in their heart, much less their actions. In other words, Job's greatest fear in life is that God would turn his back on him. And now what he's experiencing is making him think that God has turned his back on him. Has he? No! In fact, he's going through all this. Why? Because God loves him so much. But that's his greatest fear. His greatest fear. Here's what he says in Job 19. Pity me, pity me, O you my friends, for the hand of God has struck me. Why do you persecute me as God does? He was afraid that God had turned against him. In Job 13, 24, he says, Why do you hide your face and consider me your enemy? He says that to God. In Job 19, 11, he says, He has also kindled his anger against me and considered me as his enemy. This was his greatest fear. In a way, Job believed the prosperity gospel of his friends. What he was saying was, Man, If all this has come upon me, there can be only one conclusion. God is against me, and that is my deepest depressing thought. And in reality, God hadn't abandoned him. God wasn't against him. What do we have going on here? Distorted thinking. Distorted thinking. This is why he says that in verse 23, he feels hedged in. Okay? So let me make two observations before we move on to the next one. Let me say this about this biblical reality that we're complex people. Persevering through the pit of despair will often require addressing all five areas. If you're going to get out of the pit of depression, then you can't just look at it spiritually. You've got to look at it physically, mentally, emotionally, socially, relationally, and spiritually. If you're going to get through it, you you can't just pray it away. You're going to have to deal with all five areas. Secondly, getting out of the the pit of despair is ultimately God's business. Ultimately, you can deal with all five areas, but ultimately God is the one who is sovereign and is going to take you out of this. So trust Him. Trust Him to take you through it and to take you out of it. Okay, distorted thinking number three. We We can still see things clearly in the midst of our despair. This is the distorted thinking. We can still see things clearly. But the biblical reality is this. Despair causes us to lose perspective and make foolish decisions. Here's what's scary about depression. You still think you can see things clearly. And ultimately, that's what leads to suicide because you think you see no way out when in reality everyone around you says there is a way out. But you think you have, you see it so clearly, and therefore you make foolish decisions that lead to deadly and even more depressing consequences. Those in despair lose perspective on at least three things as believers. Number one, they lose perspective on life's blessings in their focus on death's false promises. This is huge. When you're depressed, you want relief. And eventually, relief will be seen in the form of getting out of the situation. Now, it may mean getting out of a relationship. It may mean getting out of abandoning God, getting out of church, going away from God. But you just see a negative way out. But the reality is, there's so much in life that is still good. Um, Elijah, I want to die. Jonah, I'm so angry I could die. They miss 
life's blessings. They don't see them anymore. Number two, they lose in despair. You lose perspective on gospel suffering and your focus on wrong thinking. Gospel suffering. We're going to talk about that upstairs in Romans 8. Here's what Romans 8, 17 says. That we, if children were heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs of Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him so that we may be glorified with Him. Now, I won't preach all what you're going to hear in a few minutes, but I'll say this. Suffering is to be expected. And here's what happens. We get depressed or we go through suffering and we think this shouldn't be happening. When in reality... It's a normal part of being a Christian. Are you with me? Gospel suffering is a reality. And if you don't have that as part of your reality of the gospel, then you're going to freak out. I'm going to freak out when bad things happen, and I'm going to think, well, it must be me. It must be God. It must be other people. And not just understand, well, this is just a part of being a Christian. Do you have that category in your life? Do you have suffering as a category of your gospel? In other words, we have lost focus on gospel suffering when we say things like this. God wouldn't allow me to go through this. God shouldn't allow me to go through this. I don't deserve this. I can't believe in a God who would allow this. See, that is all distorted thinking. And you've missed the gospel suffering. That You've missed that God sacrificed His own Son to accomplish His purposes. Are, are, are you with me on this? Do you understand what I'm saying? So you can't believe in the cross and then say, I shouldn't suffer. You know, oh, I'm so glad Jesus suffered, but God, you better not let me suffer. See, we lose perspective on gospel suffering. Number three, we lose perspective on eternal glory and our focus on present suffering. We get so focused, and I'm the same way, when we suffer, we think, this is so bad, no one has it as bad as me, and we lose all perspective on the glory that awaits us. Now, again, this is all what you're going to hear in a few minutes, so I won't preach all that, but here's what Romans 8.18 says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed in us. Listen. Distorted thinking. We, we think we see things clearly, but we've lost perspective on life's blessings, gospel suffering, eternal glory. And when we lose that perspective, when we lose that perspective, that's when you get really depressed. With me? Okay. Number four, distorted thinking number four. It's best to isolate in our despair and not tell anyone how we're feeling or struggling. Now, this is just, this is just, that's just a lot. That's how we think. Can you agree with that? It's best to isolate in my despair. Everybody else is happy. I'm, I'm depressing. I'll stay away. And don't tell anyone how you're feeling or struggling because after all, true believers shouldn't feel this way. And I don't want, you know, and I'm ashamed. And there is shame that may be heaped upon me. Why don't you just suck it up and get better, right? But here's the biblical reality. The burden of depression is often lessened in the bond of community. Could we all say that together? Let's say that together. The burden of depression is often lessened in the bond of community. Now, this is a tough one to understand and practice for at least two reasons. Let me give you two reasons. Number one, we don't handle emotional despair or mental depression very well. Do you agree? 
We just don't handle it. Whether it's us or someone else who has it, we don't handle it well. And, and, and for two, re- I think there's two reasons. Number one, because American culture is culture driven where happy meals are conveniently purchased in a, in a drive through and everything is resolved quickly. We're in a culture that doesn't think that people, we're in a culture that considers people who suffer as losers unless they quickly overcome their suffering. Then they're winners again. Are you with me? And then American Christianity is just as consumer-driven and doesn't have a very good theology of suffering. Let's face it, as American Christians, we avoid pain like the plague. We look for quick fixes, easy cures that can be purchased over the counter. We We tend to put everybody into two categories, either a victim that can't do anything about it or a victor who will overcome everything. Two categories. I'm either a victim or a victor. That's basically Christian. American Christianity basically has those two things. For the victim, you have all the self-help books, right? That tells you you're a victim, blame everybody else. And then you have a whole category of self-help books that says you're an overcomer. You can do this. Bootstrap theology. Pull yourself up by your own bootstraps to the glory of God. But the category that is missing in American Christianity, is the category of Job, the blameless, suffering, servant category. Okay, it's nothing that I did, it's nothing that I can do, I'm blameless, but I'm suffering as the servant of God, my servant Job. Not a victim, and yet not one who can just easily overcome. We forget the message of Job. Persevere in prosperity and adversity because God's majesty is always worthy of our worship. We forget the message of Jesus. Deny yourself. Pick up the cross and follow me. The cross comes before the crown. That's the message of Jesus. So we don't handle this well. Secondly, we are not comfortable when one of God's servants are roaring and wailing in despair. We're just not comfortable with that category of the blameless suffering servant. So look at verse 24 again. He says, I'm groaning. Some ver- some of your Bibles say sighing. Sighing is like this. Ah. Groaning is what he's doing, and it's the roar of a lion. It's used in Scripture of the roar of a lion. Lion. Uh, it's the growl of an enraged lion. It's the powerful groans of God's servant. He is roaring in pain. And then the word, my cries pour out like water in verse 24, are like the wails of a wounded animal, roaring and wailing. We're not comfortable with that. So let me make a couple observations here for application. First of all, Don't expect people to express emotions and confess their struggles like you do or you would like them to do. Are you with me? Just because someone does not cry like you do or when you would doesn't mean they don't cry or will not cry. Are you with me? So not everybody expresses emotions the same way and we shouldn't expect them to or force them to. All right? Secondly... Don't keep it bottled up and avoid expressing it to others. All right? So, first of all, let people express it. And then secondly, give yourself permission to express it, even if it's roaring and wailing. 
God prefers we speak with Him honestly, even in our moments of deepest gloom, than that we mouth innocuous cliches far removed from reality. In other words, God would rather hear us yell at Him and be angry at Him and, and tell Him how we really feel than to just say, you know, simple platitudes, okay? That's why we have the book of Psalms. Listen, if you've gone through despair, depression, hurt, pain, or suffering, I've never met a man or a woman who's done that who hasn't spent extended time in the Psalms. And the reason why is because people express themselves. David and other godly men, and and, and, and includes women as well, who have expressed themselves. And it gets to the heart of the matter. It gets to the heart. And my third piece of advice here is don't immediately correct, rebuke, or reject words said in despair because it's distorted thinking. Okay, don't, that the time when people are crying and wailing is not the time to correct their theology. All right? Number five, distorted thinking number five, God has abandoned me to a life without hope or purpose. God has abandoned me. The biblical reality is God has always has a sovereign and compassionate purpose for the suffering He allows into our lives. Listen, God never abandoned Job, even though He allowed it and chose to remain silent through it. Look, God doesn't speak for 40 chapters. God allowed it, but God had never abandoned Him, and He had never disapproved of Him, and He hasn't disapproved of you. God was never against Job, but actually approved of him. God had a purpose for Job, even though Job didn't know it at the time. Wow. The God of Israel, the Savior, is sometimes a God that hides himself, but never a God that is absent. Sometimes in the dark, but never at a distance. I love that. Sometimes in the dark, but never at a distance. Okay, here's distorted thinking number six. I'm a victim, and there's nothing I can do about my despair. I'm a victim, and there's nothing I can do. Or I'm a victor who can overcome anything by just praising the Lord and praying it away. That's distorted thinking. The reality is this. Believers are suffering servants who struggle, fight, struggle, battle to persevere through their adversity with roaring and wailing. This is not pretty, but this is how you do it. This is how it's done. And we should give people the freedom to do that. We should guide them in doing that. And we should walk with them through that. Are you with me? And the problem with Job's friends is they didn't do that. Instead, they criticized, they corrected, and they judged. Instead of roaring and wailing with him and and helping him guide him through the process. So here it is. You're not a victim. You're not a victor, but what do suffering servants do? Well, I've given you at least nine different ways, ten different ways. Number one, meditate and memorize Scripture. Listen, the first place you need to go is God's Word because that has the power to penetrate to the heart. Amen? You cannot abandon God's Word in the midst of your despair. You must be in the Word of God. Go to the Psalms. Go to the book of Job. But you must meditate and renew your mind with Scripture. Number two, listen and praise the Lord in music. Do you understand the book of Psalms are songs? But many of them are songs of despair. So get in music. David played music to Saul in his depression, and it lifted his spirits. 
And I'm sure David wrote these songs and sang them to lift his own spirits. Listen and praise the Lord in music. Number three, stay connected to community with other believers. We need to pursue the despairing. You cannot wait for them to come to you. You must pursue the despairing. I want to get with you. Let's go for a walk. Let's get together and talk. Let's just go out and sit in the park. Let's just, I want to be with you during this time. And then when those people come, you have to give them permission to love you. You have to give them permission to enter into your despair and and allow them to love you, pray for you, hug you, and allow them to just be with you. Number four, find someone else to encourage and serve. You got to get your mind off yourself and onto the problems of others and God's purpose for you. The best thing you can do when you're discouraged is serve. You know, right now, if you're discouraged, the best thing you do is fill eggs with us on Saturday. The best thing you can do if you're, you're downhearted, then you go to the, the egg extravaganza and you meet and greet and touch people who have problems that are greater than your own. Amen? That's how it works. Number five, find a prayer partner to sit with you on the ash heap and walk with you through your valley. That's huge. Just make sure they're not like Job's friends, okay? But find someone that would will get down and dirty with you, someone that will sit with you on your ash heap of despair. Number six, establish and maintain regular exercise and get outside to enjoy God's creation. Again, this is all interrelated, and, and when we're depressed, we don't want to do anything. But what do you, you need to do things. And a lot of times, the reason we get into this is because we don't have a good exercise regime and we're not physically uh, getting our bodies going. I, I can't explain all this. It's just all interrelated. And so the answer is get out there and get it. And, and there's something about being in God's creation that is just so renewing. Because you see that there's a God bigger that, behind all this. And... And we got our heads down and we've got our eyes on our screens and we're in our city routine and, and we have parks. You don't have to go to Hawaii. You don't have to go, uh, to some, you know, magical place. You just need to get out and see God's creation. Amen. Number seven, ask for the pastors and leaders of your church to pray for you according to James. 5, 13 through 18. We, we ignore that passage. We need to get God's men and women praying for us. Number eight, see a physician, psychiatrist, psychologist, and or professional counselor to d- address all aspects of despair. Some of this has to do with vitamin deficiencies. Here we are thinking we're going to pray this away and you just need more vitamin B or D. Or whatever, A, B, C, D, E, F, G. I don't know. It's just vitamin deficiencies, hormone deficiencies, chemical imbalances. It all plays a role. It all plays a role. And if you ignore those aspects and just think this is going to be a spiritual thing I'm going to get out of, you'll never get out of it. And God will say, hey, dummy, I made vitamins for a reason. Right? I, 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 I made you with a hormone balance, and, and, and thank God we're in a country that can examine those balances and then have uh, uh, therapies in which to replenish those things and, and, and bring us back to 
to uh, a state of what, whatever normal is. I'm not sure I know anymore what normal is. But number nine, receive lots of love with skin on it. Do you understand a hug can cure a lot of things? We need hugs. We need touching. And then number 10, never forget that God is in control. He cares, and your choices really do matter. Here's ultimately where we're going to go, Job 13. Here's what Job says. Though he slay me, I will hope in him. Nevertheless, I will argue my ways before him. I love Job. He's like, hey, nevertheless, I'm going to, I'm going to trust God no matter what, but at the same time, I'm going to argue, God. I'm going to argue with you. Now, ultimately, God will shut Job up, and we'll see this at the end of the book. But I like the honesty, right? Do you see the real? He's saying, look, God's in control. God's in control. Well, these aren't 10 easy steps, but they do address where we're at. Amen? So think through these. Look at this distorted thinking. And maybe your distorted thinking is how you view people who are in despair, and maybe your distorted thinking is because you are in despair, but we need biblical reality. And that's what the book of Job is going to give us. Amen? I hope this dip into chapter 3 has helped you. I know it's helped me. Let's pray. Father, we come, and uh, we recognize that dark nights come, but joy comes in the morning. We understand that we are very complex human beings created in your image, and yet, God, you, you take us through these dark times. I pray that we can be a church that can handle even the most godly being depressed and that we will sit on the ash heap of despair with those in despair. And when it's our turn to sit on that ash heap, we will welcome into our lives people that want to sit with us and encourage us. Father, no matter how dark it is, you are sovereign over that. And no matter how bleak it can be, there is light in your goodness and greatness. May we always, always trust in you, even in the darkest of times. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.